Well, as I said, today we come to the fourth of our series, marking the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation. And uh, if you do the math, that Reformation took place, it actually took place over a number of years and decades, actually, in the 1500s. But the starting point was October 31st, 1517, when a man named Martin Luther nailed a document on the door of a, of a castle and a church in a place called Wittenberg, Germany. That document included 95 areas of, of debate, 95 areas of disagreement with the church of that day. And so we are coming up on that anniversary here in nine days. But historians since that time have, bo- have boiled those 95 items, what was called the 95 theses, down into five main points of emphasis that became the crux of what these really is just a few men and women saw as things that needed to be that needed to be reformed or recovered in the church and all of that had to do with how a person comes to get saved from their sins and where someone can find the final authoritative answer to that that how question how does someone come to be saved. And so they came up with those five alone statements in Latin, the five solas. It, it went like this. We know from Scripture alone, that is the final authority, that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And so today we come to those glorious, and we have to say humbling words, in Christ alone. Salvation is found only in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the sole source of our salvation. We just sang the wonderful words from that hymn, In Christ alone my hope is found. Here in the love of Christ I stand. And here in the death of Christ I live. Like with all of those other alones, we've, if we've been part of a Bible-believing church, we we might see these truths as obvious, maybe as, as self-evident. We talk about Christ all the time. We sing about Christ all the time. We read about Christ all the time. So why do we need to devote a message to something that is so obvious to us? Well, the fact that this became a point of emphasis 500 years ago tells us that this truth at that point had gotten somewhat obscured somewhat blurry, somewhat confused, maybe even concealed or hidden, to the point that it needed to be recovered and re-emphasized. And so I want to take a little bit of time here at the beginning just to talk about what was going on back there so that we can see what was at stake and to see why that truth actually still matters today. And then we'll look at a few places, just a few, where we can find this in the Bible so that you can in deeper ways, in more profound ways, treasure your relationship with Christ and be carried and be uplifted by your fellowship with Christ through his life and through his death and through his resurrection and through the hope of a future coming of Christ again. So why this emphasis on Christ alone? Why did that, if we want to call it a slogan, need to be articulated so clearly? Well, in short, the church had come to the place where the opposite came to be true. For the sake of being succinct, rather than 
Christ alone being necessary to salvation. It had become Christ plus. And then you can fill in the blank. And for this, we're going to have to delve a little bit into the doctrine of the Church of Rome. What we know today is the Roman Catholic Church. And so when I mention some of these plus words, they're going to sound familiar to you if you've had any connection with that system. And I say this not to stir up another debate. Luther did a good enough job with that to change things around a little bit. But just to point out the issues back then and how those issues back then make us have to clarify these kinds of things. Though I will say that the fact that these terms are familiar, though, point to one reason why this actually still matters. Anyways, rather than Christ alone being the sole mediator of salvation for sinners, it became Christ plus. Christ plus the rosary. Christ plus penance. Christ plus the veneration of Mary. Worship of Mary. Or, or Christ plus the Mass. Or even Christ plus baptism. All of those need to be added to Christ's death in order to infuse grace, which then serves to lessen time in purgatory. Purgatory was seen as a kind of intermediate place of suffering for sins for the souls of people who die. It's called purgatory because before they go there, and even while they're there, through the prayers of those that are still alive, their sins can be purged. Purged is where purgatory comes from. Purged or cleansed by various means, including all those ways I just mentioned. And so it was the threat of purgatory that had people in the 1500s buying and selling for for the industrious these things called indulgences. And so the way it worked is if the common folk paid enough money to the church, it came with a promise of reducing the amount of punishment and the amount of time in purgatory. And they kind of had a separate thing going on, the church at that day, where they were trying to to renovate and make nicer the, 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 the Roman, the, the basilica in Rome, St. Peter's Square. And so they were, figured they could, this would be a good way to collect some money for that. It was their fundraising campaign. And so, uh, you know, this, I just kind of gave you a brief summary. It's a bit more nuanced than that in terms of, especially in terms of the different degrees of sin. But I mention it just to point out the issue. The issue was that Christ's death was not sufficient. It's an important word here. Christ's death was not sufficient to pay for sins. And that's the opposite of, the, of what the Reformers began to see as they studied the Scriptures. It was an issue of whether Christ's death was sufficient or if people needed to add something to that work, to the work of Christ that he accomplished on the cross. Everyone would agree, there was a main point of agreement, everyone would agree that, that his death was necessary to atone for sins. But the divide came on whether humans still needed to add something in addition to that, or as they might say sometimes, that humans needed to cooperate with God in order to merit eternal life. And they could do that with the help of Rome, with the help of the church. And so you put all that together, and that's why the cry of Christ alone started to be heard back 500 years ago. There was a disconnect with what the scriptures taught And the scriptures we established three weeks ago are unequaled in their authority precisely because they are the very word of God. They're unequaled. It's not the scriptures plus 
tradition. It's not the scriptures plus what the, what the magisterium taught or what the magisterium decreed. It's scripture alone. And it was scripture alone, they said, because scripture are the very words of God. And nothing can be equal to what God says and what God, God pronounces. So what is it that the scriptures teach about Christ and how people are saved for their sins? That's, why, that's where I want to spend the majority of our time now. As we go through this series, it's becoming very obvious that these are central truths to the Christian faith. In some ways, like I said at the beginning, this is just basic Christianity. But we've also seen that there's a danger of these basic truths of the faith being lost if we don't keep coming back on them, back to them, and if we don't keep proclaiming them. I've even seen it happen in my lifetime. I've been part of denominations I've, where I've seen basic truths just like this just stop being taught. Not because they didn't believe it, but because they just thought that everybody knew this already, just assumed it. And so whether it's in the name of trying to be attractional to non-believers or whether it's an emphasis on social justice or, 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 or political reform through the church or whether it's in the name of being relevant by teaching good morals, like maybe teaching 10 ways to become a better parent or 8 ways to improve your marriage or 18 leadership principles or whatever, we can easily start to lose our center. And then we just start assuming, like I said, these basic truths, like the answer to how does someone become a Christian. It's a basic question, right? I'm not saying that all those things aren't important and should never be taught. I'm saying that if we teach those principles, they have to arise out of the gospel, out of the atoning death of Jesus Christ. And all those principles have some great connections to the gospel. But they must never be separated or divorced from those truths. Well, one person who would never get distracted from the centrality of Jesus Christ was the Apostle Paul. For Paul, once he was converted to Jesus, he could not get enough of Christ. He wrote things like this about himself. This is in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. He said, I count everything as loss, everything. And before that, he mentioned, about, mentioned a number of, of, of things that should get him some acclaim. But he says, I count all of that as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Did you catch that? Nothing was more valuable, nothing had a higher currency for Paul than knowing Christ. And in the very next verse, he explains why. He says he wants to be found in Christ. In other words, he wants to be seen by God and others through his union with Christ. To be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And that goes back to last week's topic, right? Our, our faith is, is in the righteousness, not of ourselves, not in what we have brought to the equation, not in works that cooperate with Jesus to please God, but in the righteousness which comes through faith in Jesus. Faith alone through Christ alone. Anyways, all that to point out that Paul saw everything as loss in view of the surpassing treasure that is Christ. Paul, we could say, had a one-track mind. 
sometimes talk like that when someone is constantly and almost obsessively focused on one thing. Sometimes talk about young men having one-track minds, right? Guys, we were all there at one point in terms of thinking about a certain gal. But it can also refer to people who are obsessed with different things, whether it might be sports, it might be cars, it might be shopping, I'm not sure, clothes, whatever it is. There are always things about, they're always thinking about that one thing. For Paul, there was no question that he had a one-track mind. And that track always led to Christ. That wasn't only because he had some sort of, you know, just some sort of experience with Jesus on the Damascus Road. It was because he realized that it's through Christ alone that he or any person can achieve salvation. Better, it's because of what Christ achieved on the cross for us in our place and in those achievements alone that Paul that made Paul see the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And so just like with other messages in this series, we could go to lots of places in the Bible to see this emphasis on Christ alone. Like I said to the children, Jesus himself said that all the scriptures speak of me. But I want to look at how Paul thought of Christ and to confine ourselves just to two letters that he wrote to one church. The church is the church in a city called Corinth. And these letters have been named 1st and 2nd Corinthians. It's actually been, been discovered that Paul wrote four letters to the church at Corinth, and th- this would be the second and the fourth letter. But these are the ones that God sought to inspire and include in, in the Scriptures. Now these letters are written to a church. The first letter is actually about the church and some problems that had started to creep into the church. The second letter was written because Paul's reputation had started to become damaged, and he writes in large part in 2 Corinthians to defend his ministry. But in both letters, there's this constant undercurrent that displays Paul's one-track, Christ-focused, Christ-obsessed, if we want to say it that way, Christ-treasuring, maybe a better way to say it, mind. In the second letter, the one thing that he repeats over and over again is that is that Paul doesn't ultimately want to defend himself. He wants to boast in Christ. That's actually how he defends himself, by saying that all he's doing is continually pointing to Christ. Back in the first letter, Paul is saying that if churches would focus on the truth of Christ alone, some of the problems that that they were facing would not really be problems at all. They had lost their center. It's only when a church takes its focus off Christ that things start to go sideways in the church. That's what all of 1 Corinthians is about, just to to encapsulate the whole letter. And so I invite you to take a quick tour with me through these letters. We're just going to make some quick visits, some quick stops at some of the sites in these letters to help us see Paul's one track mind and really to see how Christ should always be valued and treasured by us who are united to Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone. You can see Paul's mind right from the very beginning of 1 Corinthians. So just turn right to the beginning of the letter. Just, you can see it just through the sheer number of times that he mentions Christ. And so let your eyes just land on those first nine verses of this letter. Four times Christ is mentioned in these first three verses. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus... And our brother Sosthenes, 
to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Four times in three verses he's just mentioned. And then once in each verse, up to verse 9, with the exception of verse 5, where he refers to Jesus by his, just by his personal pronoun, him. Paul is an apostle of Christ. The church is sanctified in Christ and, and call upon the name of Christ. Grace and peace come from Christ. They were enriched in Christ. The testimony of Christ was confirmed among them as they are waiting for the revealing of Christ, at which point they will be shown guiltless, and they have been called into fellowship with Christ. It's all about Christ, right in the introduction of his letter. And so you know the rest of the letter is going to be all about that. From the beginning of our Christian life to the end, it's all about Christ. In Paul's greeting and opening words to the church, he wants to remind them very clearly, without any doubt, that they are who they are because of Christ. And their future hope is in Christ. From the beginning of the Christian life to the end of the Christian life, Christ is our hope. That's what we just sang. No guilt in life, no fear in death. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. The very beginning of our Christian life to the end. We stand in the power of Christ. Look over at chapter 2. Paul tells them what he's all about and where his focus is. Now, now the usual sequence was that Paul would, would go to these cities, and as he would visit these cities, he would proclaim the gospel, and, and then people would come to believe, and those believers would then form a new church. And then sometime later, Paul would write a letter to these churches. He's somehow, somewhere along the line, he's read a, a report or he's heard a report about how they're doing, and so he would write them a letter, sometimes to encourage them to keep going and sometimes to, like he does here, to get in their face and to say, you need to go back to what you were initially called to be. Well, here in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul reflects back on his time in Corinth and the purpose of his visit. So look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, And when I came to you, so he's talking about that first time, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. But look at how he describes now the singularity of his purpose. Verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you, nothing, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's almost like he's saying, I, I really didn't care about anything else. I don't care about anything else other than that one thing, and that is proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the extent of my ministry. And please don't look at my lofty speech or, or any of that sort of thing. So that's not going to get you anywhere. What's going to get you anywhere is looking at Christ, the one, on, the one whom I'm proclaiming. Christ and him crucified. Paul's ministry was a a, a Christ-proclaiming, cross-focused ministry. James Boyce writes, Paul was not concerned about his own reputation. He cared little for his own comfort and safety. He was not interested in Christianity as a social movement or as a political cause. The only thing that mattered to him was the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
Paul's only purpose and sole ambition was to preach Christ alone, not Christ as a Greek philosopher or Jewish miracle worker, but as a Savior who suffered and died for sinners. I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Christ and the cross are the central truth that we need to keep at the forefront of our church and of our lives. We don't ever graduate from talking about that. We can't ever stray too far away from that. As a church, we have to keep coming back to it. Of course, one way Jesus helps us with that is by commanding us to observe the Lord's Supper regularly. The Lord's Supper reminds us of Christ and Him crucified. Well, from that starting point, Paul keeps coming back to Christ as he teaches the church. They, they had gone sideways since his initial visit, and the church has started to become actually man-centered rather than Christ-centered. They started aligning themselves with different human leaders, and so Paul feels compelled to remind them that everything has to go back to Christ. So in chapter 3, he reminds them that Jesus is the foundation of, of, of anything that is built. Of any growth that happens in the church, Christ is the foundation. So he says in chapter 3, verse 11, No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ. It's a reminder that we don't align ourselves after human teachers or leaders, precisely because they are human. So don't go around saying, I'm of Augustine, or I'm of Luther, or I'm of Calvin, or I'm of Wesley, or I'm of Spurgeon, or I'm of Finney, or I'm of Graham, or I'm of MacArthur, or I'm of Piper. All those people might be good teachers, but they're all building upon the foundation of Christ. We are, that's exactly what Paul said. Someone else plants, someone else waters. But God gives the growth. We are Christians, meaning we are ultimately followers of Christ. Paul didn't even want people following him. So in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, this is how, we, this is how someone should regard us, as servants of Christ. It is Christ alone that we follow and that we serve. With that foundation in place, Paul spends the main part of that first letter instructing the church on various things that had gone sideways, various issues that had come up. And really, he's just calling them back to Jesus the whole time, always bringing them back to Jesus. Keep coming back to Christ. Once we keep Jesus in the center of the church, everything else follows. That's what chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 are all about. Sin is not tolerated in chapter 5. Unity is encouraged in a couple of different chapters. Marriage is upheld in chapter 7. Weaker Christians are told to be respected in chapters 8 and 9. People are built up in love as you get especially into chapter 13. All of those things follow when our focus is on Christ alone. When the crucified and risen Christ is proclaimed clearly. Which brings us to 1 Corinthians 15. And for those of you who know your way around the Bible, you might instinctively know that 1 Corinthians 15 is the chapter about the resurrection. This is what we preach on Easter Sunday. It's about Christ's resurrection, and it's about the future resurrection hope of believers. And that's true, but right at the beginning of that chapter, Paul reminds us of the importance of Christ, just like he did in, back in chapter 2, verse 2. Here, look what he says in chapter 15, verse 1. 
Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. There's that truth of standing in Christ. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he, Christ, was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the Twelve and then to a number of other people. Here we have the Scriptures alone, right? Because it says in accordance to the Scriptures a couple of times there. We have the Scriptures alone pointing to Christ alone as the only source of our salvation, as the only way that we can stand before God. We stand before God through faith alone and Christ alone according to the Scriptures alone. And now to 2 Corinthians. Once again, as we get to that letter, Paul starts with Christ. He can't even write here, one, two, three. He can't even write five words without mentioning Jesus Christ. Doesn't say, How are you doing? You know, how are things going? Here's what's going on in my life. What about you? No, he goes right to Christ. But here in this letter, written about, it's probably written about a year after that, or 1 Corinthians. Paul is under attack now from false teachers, and, and, and they're trying to cast doubt on his credibility. They're trying to do harm to his reputation. And so Paul, at this point here, is actually suffering for his faith, physically and emotionally. He's being ridiculed and persecuted, beaten. But does the fact of his suffering maybe get his mind off Christ? No. In fact, it actually drives him closer to Christ. How? Why? Well, suffering helps him identify with the sufferings of Christ. And that actually turns out to be his greatest joy. And he's, he's actually thrilled to be able to share in Christ's sufferings. And those sufferings not only connect him to Christ, but to the church. Look at verses 5 and 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, So he's suffering abundantly. So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. If we're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. So from Christ's sufferings, we are connected to him in in that way. We get to share in his sufferings. And we are able then to comfort each other. All of that owes to Christ alone. But I just want to go on to show you a very important section in chapter 5. You need to be familiar with this section. If we come to rightly understand and savor the wonder of this truth right here, in chapter 5, it helps us get to where Paul was to see the surpassing worth, value, treasure of knowing Christ. There's nothing more costly and precious and valuable than understanding and knowing what God has done for us through Christ. You'll find this, like I said, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
and starting in verse 16. Now you'll want to look at this, or, or at least look it up later, and let it land on you and impact you, maybe as you're just meditating on it at some point after this, after I stop talking. Let me just start to read in verse 16. Actually, let me go back to verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, there's a beautiful verse, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And so in what way, Paul, in what way is someone a new creation if they're in Christ? Well, the old has passed away, Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I mean, that's deep enough, right? Through Christ, reconciled us to himself. That is, Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, so he's talking about now what our role is afterwards. God making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now he's going to go back to salvation again. Be reconciled to God. And, and here's what actually happened in verse 21. For our sake, he made him, so he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Did you get that? Now you could read that and, and, and describe, try to describe that with a number of different adjectives. Amazing? That would be one. How about this one? How about unfair? He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Doesn't sound nice. In other words, Jesus never sinned, yet God put onto Jesus, his son, his only son, all the sins of those who would ever trust in him. Now, that seems unfair. And not only that, and here's the amazing part God did all of this. God allowed his son to be subject to receiving, to, 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 to be subject to absorbing the full force of the punishment of our sin so that in him we the sinners might become the righteousness of God now that's an amazing transaction right there an amazing process how how can this be and how is that fair well the answer to that is it's not it's a pure act of love of grace on behalf of a loving and gracious God. How do we respond to that? Well, we can't really do anything in response to that. We can't pay back God for that. We're, 
We're not in his debt. And so we may as well just sing and praise God for the gift of salvation through the gift of his one and only son. A precious truth like 2 Corinthians 5.21 makes people write songs like, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me, me who caused his pain? A writer here, I think it's John Wesley who wrote this, is, is, is incredulous, right? For me, who him to death pursued, amazing love, he says. How can it be? Or how about this one? Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. What do you say to that? Hallelujah, what a savior. He goes on in another verse, guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. Now understanding something like this renders us speechless. But what it does do is it helps us exalt Christ. It humbles us, first of all, knowing that we are unable and unqualified to accomplish something so amazing. We can't muster this up ourselves. And it astounds us knowing that Jesus was able and qualified to accomplish something so amazing. So I close with, with some words from two writers. These two writers are called Michael Reeves and Tim Chester on what this idea of Christ alone does for us practically. They write this. They write, all who come to believe this feel how it throws everything happily head over heels. We naturally have ourselves at the center of our own solar system. It's the natural human instinct, right? Christianity, they say, we assume, must be all about how I'm doing. Being a Christian is like having Christ in my orbit, which seems fine when I'm doing well. The rest of the time, I must worry. Have I prayed enough? Have I sinned too much? Can God still love me after that? But this truth, this truth of Christ alone, places Christ at the center, replacing fitful anxiety with stable joy. For instead of asking, how righteous am I? To know how I stand before God, I ask, how righteous is Christ? And then I smile. For amid my ups and downs, he is utterly righteous, yesterday, today, and forever, and all his is mine. Of course, they continue, this is news so, and, and these guys are British, and so, of course, this is news so rip-roaringly good, I love that, we rub our eyes in amazement. Imagine that we have been dreaming, and then we return to our old way of thinking. So human, right? This is why we need to urge people, need to urge ourselves to remember and to hold fast to this sweet message day by day. I pray that we would do exactly that. That we would see Christ and his work on the cross as exceedingly great and exceedingly amazing 
and exceedingly valuable. I pray that it would cause us to lean on his righteousness alone and not on our own efforts. I pray that if there's anyone here in this room who has not trusted in Christ alone, that you would do that right now. Just come to God, admit that you are helpless in your sin, and then entrust your salvation to Christ alone. And not on your own efforts. And finally, I pray that the recovery and application of that great truth to, to our hearts would drive us to be like Christ. Would drive us, as 2 Corinthians 3 says, to be conformed to his image. Be like Christ in forgiving others because you have been so forgiven. Be like Christ in spending yourself for others. Be like Christ in your generosity. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 talks about exactly that. It's because of Christ and his generosity to us that though he was rich, he became poor so that we might become rich. That we now are called to be cheerful in our giving and our generosity. Overflowing in our generosity. Find in Christ that his grace is sufficient for you in weakness. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Be like Christ in patience. Be like Christ in love. Be like Christ in your suffering. And then, may Christ alone fill our hearts with praise and thanksgiving. Some great words in 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Let's bow together in prayer, and as we pray, I'm going to ask the singers and the musicians to come, and we're going to sing again in Christ alone. I think we said that we'd like to sing the first and fourth verses, but I think we need to sing all four, you guys. <laughs> it just all fits together. So we're going to sing all of in Christ alone. Let's bow together. Our Heavenly Father, we, we pray that you would help us continuously to behold your Son, Remind us, remind us, we pray, that it's Jesus that is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to you except through Christ. We're grateful, our Father, for the righteousness of Christ, which, which can amazingly and freely be credited to our account. We thank you that you made Jesus to be sin. This, this one who knew no sin, who perfectly obeyed you, who perfectly obeyed your laws, you made Jesus to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You've shown your love for us, you say in a different place, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we want to Respond as a congregation now to your grace and mercy with amazement, but also with deep and profound gratitude. May Jesus Christ be praised. We pray in his name. Amen.